and they were all staring at me. And, and I said, what's up? And they go, did you hear Kurt Cobain is dead? And he committed suicide that same day that I met Shirley. And uh, it's very strange because obviously Nirvana was a huge, uh, had a huge impact on my life. It allowed me to sort of pick and choose what I wanted to work on as a producer. But that's the day I met Shirley. So it's literally a changing of the guard. My path just went in a different path that day. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we, we drew, drew the map. map. Hey, big curious creatures, uh, welcome. None other than Mr. Butch Vig. Butch, welcome to the show. Oh, buddy, I love that is a very classy drum roll there. You totally nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> I've been working on it. I've been working on it. Good, good. Yeah. I mean, I have I I love both of you as drummers. You both have totally unique personalities and you've played on some incredible records that I listen to a billion times, you know, when I was a, a, a up and coming drummer and even today. Um, so I'm just, I just have to, I'm really happy to be here with you today because I have much respect for both of you. Well, th well thank you very much. Um, it's mutual respect, but uh, it, yeah, it's mutual. And by the way, we, we realize now we know the mistake, the error of our ways that uh, actually the correct pronunciation um, is booch. Yes? <laughs> uh, we got this from, uh, we got this from Shirley told us that. Yeah, that's right. Shirley told us. She said, she said, you're saying it wrong. It's booch. It's booch. Yeah. I, well, people get my name wrong. They call me Mitch, Bruce, Mitch. George. Yeah. I don't know why I get called George, but I'll say, yeah, my name's Butch, and then they call me George like a minute later. So I guess there's something in that that, that uh, matches up somehow. So we're all drummers here. We have, we have a saying on the show, you know, all drummers are friends, right? Yeah. We're a clan. We're a clan, yeah, like goalkeepers. You know, <laughs> stuff, you know. We just heard, what did we just hear that? Uh, all musicians are drummers, right? All vocalists are drummers. Oh, yes, yes. Wasn't that, um, oh my gosh, James Brown said that, right? He said that all, all, all mus musicians are James drummers. James Brown yeah. said it, yes. You know, I was very good friends with uh, James drummer, Clyde Stubblefield. He lived in Madison and uh, he used to play like three or four nights a week. He had a, like a Monday blues jam at this one club and Tuesday was a funk jam out at like the Holiday Inn or whatever. He just loved to play. The coolest, nicest guy. He did not like working for James Brown. Oh, James is one of those guys who, if, if Clyde, Clyde was an amazing drummer, he missed one little pickup, he'd go, that's a $50 fine, you know? Oh. Oh. He would find everybody. James was good. He knew if someone missed even a tiny grace note. Wow. Um, but, I mean, they made incredible music together. And, uh, I mean, James Brown was incredibly groundbreaking as an artist, especially, you know, how difficult it is to be uh, African-American in the United States, you know, or anybody because you're so discriminated against. But incredible drummer. He played, uh, Clyde played on some of the garbage records. He would just come in and play these loops. So one time... Uh, we, we were working on the first garbage record, and uh, he came in on a Saturday morning, like at 10 a.m. 
And unlike most musicians, Clyde would show up early. If I said, you know, we're, I'd be, right. I got there, I go, shit, the kit sounds terrible. I got to get it tuned and I'm playing <laughs> it. And, and he comes like a half hour early, goes, hey, brother, I'm here. And I'm think, thinking, going, oh my God, this is going to suck. The kit sounds so bad. He goes, oh, just let me go in and mess up. The second he started playing, it was incredible. <laughs> and yeah. I'd been playing on it like five minutes before and it sounded like shit. So that just goes <laughs> to tell you, it's sometimes it's the dynamics and what you're playing and how you played him. Yeah. Yeah. He, and he was just a true gentleman, true gentleman. Eric Clapton, I think, and and uh, George Harrison. George Harrison bought a, a guitar from, I think, Guitar Center, one of those places, and um, <laughs> he took the guitar around to uh, George, and it was like you know, Eric Clapton's favorite guitar for whatever that would be, and George is playing it, and he go, yeah, 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 but it doesn't doesn't sound like Eric. It doesn't sound like Eric. Why, why <laughs> is there something wrong with it? And and he was thinking to himself, oh yes, that's because you're not Eric Clapton. But, you know, whatever. I remember having this this theory of that you know instruments kind of embodied the person playing them. That Hendrix's guitar, you know, that the kind of grain in the wood would would sort of resonate in a peculiar way because of the feedback he was using. That he made a Strat sound different because of the way he bent the thing, you know, and powered it. Um, I don't know. I, I I came across Clyde Stubblefield quite quite late. I I got this gig in Berlin um, as a college lecturer, as a you know a drum professor, which of course I'm not really. And um, the students all knew about. Oh yes, Clyde. you are. Oh yes, you are. You are the drum <laughs> professor. Oh, I am now. I have, it's official now. You know, it's on the website. But. Um, so I'm looking at a lot of videos of Clyde that I, I'd never seen this guy play. And, and it was just, you know, like that beat. And he's just going. And then they were talking about these grace notes. And he said, ghost notes. And he said, I, I never had any ghost notes. I, I just play. I just play the way I play. And, and I kind of thought, he seems to, as you say, he came across as a gentleman and somebody really relaxed behind the drums. Just It's like second nature. As if he's always been there, yeah. Totally, totally. I did the same thing. I, you know, I asked him after one of the sessions, I, I asked him, Budgie, after one of the sessions, Clyde, how do you play like that? And he just looked at me and said, I try not to think about it. <laughs> and uh, I think that's it. It just it came out of him, he meant that, that kind of crazy, loose, perfect feel. And it's uh, pretty magical. Isn't it like the guys who played on the Motown records? You know, the story goes, they shifted the office furniture out of the way, like set up the kit quickly, put the mics up and all this kind of and you think every time you try and do it, you try and do it with that kind of feel, but you know, there's something, it's a bit like you get the chance to play your favorite drum riff and it's everybody does it you know you think this is I, I really like doing this beat and if you get the chance to play in a band you sound like the best drummer in the world because you you just know how to do this thing and i think is that like a lucky break you get when you i think it is well you guys know how much <laughs> luck sometimes and mistakes and happy accidents happen in the studio um yeah. you have to know when when it's a good mistake and when it's a bad mistake i think that's the trick of uh, making good records right 
I was one. I was wondering what what you know you know like because every so often when you're in a band you have to check into a hotel under a, a different name otherwise you know people are ringing you at four in the morning going I love your music and you're like I, <laughs> um, I was wondering if, what your name would be I, w- I would try and make up different combinations I, I thought Mr. Fig would be good I, I'll tell you I can't tell you because my tour manager Levi will get mad at me <laughs> um, uh, but I, I usually pick either I, and it changes from sometimes from tour to tour but either famous drummers right who you know who could be going back uh you know 40 50 years um or because i'm a big uh sports fan with my my wisconsin team the green bay packers um all green bay packers packer players like ray nitschke or yeah you guys probably wouldn't know them but uh, and sometimes i'll check in somewhere they go mr nitschke and then someone will go wait ray nitschke they'll know and then i go oh, i can't use that name i got to come up with something more obscure <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know that for a while dave Grohl used artemis pile who was the drummer in leonard skinner that was his yeah. hotel name for many years and hopefully dave you've changed it so i just didn't just give a, a giveaway there but right um i think he's changed it since then did he not get like loads of calls? Maybe he got loads of calls. I, I would be glad of calls to my hotel room at three or four in the morning, you know, because I, I never got to sleep. <laughs> no, half the time it was my problem. My problem was like, I know, I, I, either I couldn't sleep because I just wasn't trying to. And then there was a time when, I, you know, the tours were, I was trying to get to sleep and just became an insomniac because I could never come down from the gig. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I, I do have somewhere over there, yeah, like a box of photos that I would take from the hotel window at night, you know, intersections and traffic lights change. <laughs> that sounds like a coffee table book. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I think it's, that, that's uh, a coffee table book, Budgie. <laughs> working on that one. Insomnia at 3 a.m. <laughs> I just got done with a, uh, I, I just finished a seven week run with garbage. And, How was that? Uh, I've been home about two weeks. I finally acclimated. It was great. The shows were awesome. We did a co-headline with uh, Noel Gallagher and then the, the Canadian band Metric Open Force was a great. High flying birds. Yeah, it was a great combo. Uh, everyone got along great, big crowds. Um, but I can't sleep at all. I can't sleep on the tour bus. And then, you, you know, if you guys know, sometimes you drive four or five hours, you pull into a hotel yeah. at four or 5 a.m. And then you get in and you try to lay down and you lay there and go, okay, go to sleep, go to sleep. And um, it, I'm just, after like two or three days, I'm completely frazzled as most of us are. And I have a theory that when you tour, your IQ drops 20 points. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It just, you get yeah. dumber. Because I think lack of sleep, like there's so many things I go, I'm going to do this on the tour. I'm going to read these books. I'm yeah. going to go to this museum. And I usually start to do that. And then you get so frazzed out after about two or three weeks that you just sort of veg out. You know, I'll turn on, sometimes I turn on the weather channel in my hotel room. <laughs> and I'll just look at the what the local weather is and sort of stare at the screen for a couple hours and hopefully fall asleep for a few a few minutes. So. 
But you guys know that as, as well as well as me. Touring is hard. Yeah, but I'm going to put it down to um, you know maybe a little bit of the aging process, you know. I, but I know that now I'm like a gentleman that, that I toured with. I thought, oh, he takes a nap. He takes a nap at a certain time, <laughs> like two hours before the show. And I thought, well, it's interesting, but I could never stop. I was always working right up until, you know, the, the intro music started. Yeah. But but now I remember on this most recent touring I did was with um, singer-songwriter John Grant. And his, um, his band, we were all about a similar age. And me and uh, Jakob and Peter, the Icelandic trio, bar me um right they we'd all head back to the bus because usually the bus was parked outside the venue because it was one of those bus tours and we'd we'd we're the only ones who loved our bunk you know <laughs> getting the bunk cup of tea <laughs> head down for about half an hour an hour before the show and then we feel great and then you're ready for the gig yeah it makes it makes a difference i mean i think um you know like the the real difference is when when i was you know like 30, 40 years ago, you know, you could sleep on top of the gear in the back of the transit and for a couple of hours in the afternoon and then you were awake for the rest of the night. Now, it's like, if there's not a nice bed and a shower at the end of this, there's going to be trouble, you know, so. (laughs) (laughs) We're okay. We're all, you know, blokes together. How do do the, the, the female members of our team get on with festival sites and stuff well Shirley is a, a she's a road dog I mean she loves touring and she loves being on stage you know I think she's a bit of a show-off exhibitionist as as lead singers sometimes need to be you guys yeah, know that they can be they can or they be. can be never never surely 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 not surely. <laughs> <laughs> but she takes pretty good care of herself uh you know just you know tries to eat healthy and and uh, you know we don't really we, we drink wine and we'll have a few cocktails and stuff, but we, we we don't really smoke or there's no drugs or anything. So we're you know at this point we're trying to right. keep a fairly healthy life and, and eat like I said eating healthy. I think is one of the things that that is not always easy to do. Um, sometimes the catering is terrible and and you're stuck somewhere you can't find any good food. But it is what it is. It makes up for the lack of sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Take us back, take us back, Butch, to the uh, to the beginning of um, of garbage. You, 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 you did you, did you were you? I, I got the the brief story of it. I knew um, both Lol and I knew of Shirley in uh, Goodbye, Mister McKenzie. Right, you know, and if if it was, I always imagined Goodbye, Mister McKenzie as like a kind of Scottish version of the band I was in in Liverpool called Big in Japan. Yeah, yeah, where there was all. The, the, you know, it was like everybody was destined for something, and and Shirley was de- definitely destined. But how did you, how did you, how did it happen? That's it's a just a story I'm just intrigued by. Well, it, we're, it's we're very lucky. Um, you know, Duke and Steve and I had started doing remixes for like House of Pain and Depeche Mode and U2 and Nine Inch Nails, and that sort of template uh-huh. of taking a track and then creating guitar and drum loops and weird noise loops and then putting the lead vocal of that back into it. That was what, what sort of got us excited about starting a band that sort of used that uh, approach. And so we started writing some music and um, 
we th we didn't really know who we wanted, but we thought we'd, it'd be great to work with a female singer. And um, there was a show on MTV called 120 Minutes that was on Sunday nights. You guys probably remember they played a lot of cool alternative rock. Yeah. And uh, Steve, the guitarist in Garbage, uh, some, he, he had a VCR and he would tape it on video cassette. And he came in on a one Monday morning and said, I saw this band uh. called Angelfish. And uh, and the singer, Shirley, was great. And it was uh, their single, I think the only single they released over here called Suffocate Me. And uh, what we loved about that song is that Shirley sang really low, like, suffocate me with your own desire, suffocate me. <laughs> Compared to a lot of the alt singers of the time, there's a lot of sort of screaming, like heavy emotion, a lot of really pushing at him. Right. She sang the opposite. And uh, so we called her up. This is And this is a true story. We called her up, and um, she was doing dishes in her kitchen. And I think she thought it was bullshit. <laughs> like, hey, we, we want to come over and meet you and talk. And would you be interested in, in coming over and singing some songs and see if there's some chemistry and whatever? So Duke and Steve and I flew to London. And we met her at some posh hotel. We weren't staying at this hotel, but Shirley was freaked out. It was like a really expensive hotel where it cost, you know, just to have some tea and stuff was like s several hundred pounds for the afternoon. Um <laughs> And, uh, but we hit it off. We hit it off. We talked not even so much about music, but about politics and film and food and just things that we liked and disliked. And, and so we hit it off. I left to go to a, a restaurant to meet Flood and Alan Mulder and a bunch of other engineers and producers because I really hadn't seen them. And I wanted to sit down and have a beer and talk. And I got there and they were all staring at me. And, and I said, what's up? And they go, did you hear? Kurt Cobain is dead. Oh. And he committed suicide that same day that I met Shirley. And wow. uh, it's very strange because obviously Nirvana was a huge, uh, had a huge impact on my life. It allowed me to sort of yes. pick and choose what I wanted to work on as a producer. But that's the day I met Shirley. So it's literally a changing of the guard. My path just went in a different path that day. But anyway, Shirley came to uh, uh, our studio in Madison, Wisconsin, like uh, two or three weeks later. And uh, when we worked on some songs. It took a, a couple tries to sort of uh, get the chemistry, but then, the, the, you know, uh, we, we've been doing it now for, well, so that was 1995. So, God, 28 years, or something like that, that we've been a band. Wow. And, and you're getting getting better now, right? I don't know if we're getting better, but I think we've figured <laughs> out a way that we just, we have a, you know, we kind of know how to keep it smooth that that's what our motto is let's you know we, we we we're still challenging ourselves we're working on a new record now and i have to say some of the music is quite um at least for us it's uh, quite eclectic early on who knows by the time we finish the record uh, early <laughs> next year it might it usually morphs into something a different kind of beast but uh yeah. we get along great i mean we we enjoy each other's company we had a blast on this tour we we, we very much take the piss out of each other <laughs> we you know we make fun of each other which i think is a healthy Healthy attitude. Don't take yourself too seriously. Right. Actually, Shirley said some things to us about about that. How that the good thing with with your band was that because it's a very unnatural situation in lots of ways to be together as adults twenty four seven with the people that you work with and the people that you hang out with and the people like it's closer than being married in lots of ways for periods of time. Yeah. And she said one thing that you guys did that she, you know, which makes perfect sense to, to me and Budgie um, is, is that when it, 
started to get a little angst and a little, you know, mm. difficult, you made a decision like, hey, let's just, we, we like each other. We always will like each other. So let's just hold it for a moment or two and, and come back when things, things feel, feel better. And, you know, I look at my own history. I think there are definitely times when that would have been a really, really good idea. Yeah, yeah. We wished we'd have heard that some from somebody sooner, right? Yeah, yeah. But you know, you never, you never know what's going to go go on. But I think you know, definitely with with me and Budgie, like we're slightly older gentlemen now, we can avoid most of that <laughs> kind of you know terrible teenage angst that goes yeah. on you know, in, in bands up until your mid thirties. Really, you know, so. I get angst just doing this. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you know this. When we started out making records, it was the cycle. You would make a record, spend however long, three months or six months or a year or whatever, mm. and then you would go on tour and promote it. And when you finished, you just did it again. And uh, and we did four records like that, and that's why we were just mm. burnt out. So when we decided to take a break, I think all of us thought it would be about 18 months or so or two years. It turned into seven years. Wow. <laughs> wow. The seven year it. And then <laughs> and then, so it was we felt ready to go after a seven year break. And we're we're making our uh, eighth record as I speak now. So we uh, it's been great ever, ever since we took that 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 hiatus as we call it. Yeah, you're right. It's the the nature of the beast. I mean, I think the first five years I had it was like we made four albums and toured every album for nine months a year. I mean, we were basket cases by by year five, you know. Yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah, makes sense. It's interesting now. I mean, I know a lot of young musicians, and uh, they're it's the cycle. It's not really the same cycle anymore. Part of that's that so many people just consume singles that they release a track or two, and then they'll go out and do some promotion, which usually doesn't last that long and then they may go in and do you know maybe an album or whatever but um just with the internet and the way you can promote and market music now it's everything has changed so much so i don't think people get sucked into the kind of cycle that we that we were used to you know we started out me and budget got to bring that back aren't we we're going to bring it back we're going to go for a solid 18 months on the road yeah we are yes we're going to be non-stop for the next three years right law because we can't think of any other anything else to do right well no i can actually think of a lot of things i should be doing but um it's gonna now it's hard fitting fitting things in i never had a family when i was like you know younger and other commitments outside of the band when Susie and the Banshees took a break you know Susie and I raised the creatures to fill the gap (laughs) yeah yeah it was like we couldn't stop yeah well we you know I don't think that we uh understood how sort of burnt out we were until we were like at least a couple years into taking that time off because then we like like Shirley said we started hanging out we'd go out to dinner or we'd you know go to go to party somewhere we'd hang out and um and we realize how much we still love each other. And, uh, and, and really that's the, the reason that we're still able to, to work together as a bank. I, you know, as a producer, I've worked with many bands that they won't even talk to each other in the room. You go in and you, and you have to talk to the guitarist and talk to the drummer or the singer and you, and you try to get him sort of focused. And then it's, it can be very difficult sometimes. And, 
and a lot of bands obviously don't last that long because of because of that dynamic it's like you said it's, a, it's, it's kind of amazing to me because you know in in many ways you know when i look at the cure despite you know things that went on and that it was really started off that way as a gang yeah you know, like a gang of friends and that was what that's what its strength was and uh you know we have uh, me and budgie have made a record now and with a our producer jack knife lee right on he was telling me the other day that um that very same thing you know he works with lots of bands that people you know oh the guitarist hates the singer the singer hates the drummer you know it's just uh, honestly why the fuck would you do it you know really you know life is too short find a bunch of people I, you I, like i you know? thought i thought that, that was normal I thought that was the way it should be <laughs> <laughs> the friction the creative friction that kind of crept in as and there'd be moments of levity where it was all going great and then there'd be those moments where really it was like everybody in their own corner you know and there's like where, where's the referee yeah yeah well i mean there's difference between healthy creative friction you know like you look at you know it's that film that was out you know the old resurface beatles stuff and you see like you know lennon and mccartney sort of you know going backwards and forwards and then you see george harrison looking like a sort of evil spirit in the corner you know it's like and, and ringo we know what ringo was doing don't we yep yeah we all know what Ring ringo was sitting there going like <sighs> these guys one day they'll sort it out <laughs> i felt terrible for ringo because you know they're these long shots and they're just going back and forth and ringo just had to sit there and wait until they started playing okay okay now i'll come in and then wait while they're noodling around and he probably had a book on top of the on top of the kick drum you know he's probably reading that way so like oh, oh right ready yeah <laughs> I, I saw him i saw him at the greek here first time like you know, my wife who goes to all the concerts right? yeah yeah so i've got tickets for ringo and i go oh, i've seen paul mccartney i've never seen ringo so i'm gonna go and see Ringo. it was amazing it was absolutely amazing two things from it one ringo plays the whole set sings plays wow right on. and then at the end of the set he's doing jumping jacks on stage <laughs> he's 82 <laughs> years old for goodness sake i mean you know he's like I, he said i just do this because it's fun and and that's great. And then the other thing is, he gets all his mates. So he had Edgar Winter on there. And I would like, when I die, if I go to heaven, I want God to look like Edgar Winter because he was he was yeah man amazing. You know, it's like all my fourteen year old dreams coming back, watching the old Grey Whistle Test and seeing him play. He plays everything. You know, it's just like yeah yeah. And I think I didn't. Joe Walsh was Joe Walsh on the tour, or uh, um... not on this tour? Instead, they had um, the guy from. Uh, I'm going to get mail for this. The guy from uh, Toto playing guitar, whose name I don't remember, but mm -hmm. um, yeah. Oh, Steve Lukather, yes, maybe? Yes, it or... might have been him. Whatever. Anyway, Ringo. If Ringo calls, if Ringo calls and say, "Hey, you want to go out with my band?" You say, "Yes, I do." <laughs> So he's always going to be playing with killer musicians, and oh, yeah. why wouldn't that be a blast? You know. Yeah, I mean, everybody was very good, and everybody played, you know, their hits. So there was the guy from the Average White Band, and the guy from Men at Work. Those people, I don't know the names. I'm cool, sorry. that's so you know, cool. No, it was good. It was very entertaining. The only bad thing about it was, you know, because me and my wife Cindy, we were the youngest people there. The only bad thing about it was at the end. The lines for the bathrooms were phenomenal because you know all these seventy-five-year-old people have been, you know, yep. jigging yep. it up, drinking lots of beer and stuff. I and thought so the lines would have been non-stop, Lala, all evening. <laughs> 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 
One song, that's it, gotta go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have this whole thing, you know, because the set was, we played about 75 minutes on this. Yeah. A little bit longer, because we flip with Noel. Some shows we played the last slot, and some play, shows we played the middle slot, but I have this whole thing that my wife is 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 sort of amused by, but I I get up and I front load my day with a, like two big liters of water and I put this hydrating thing in it, so it, so I get electrolytes and stuff, and then I sort of and I have coffee and I eat a, a lunch around one or two, and then I I don't like to eat or drink much before we go on, so right. and I stop drinking fluids about three or four p.m. and then I time it. So if we're going on, say, at uh, 8.30, I take a pee like at 8.25. Right. And then I don't have to pee because I haven't had, you know, I haven't been drinking pints of lager for the last, like when I was <laughs> stupid, like 20 years ago, I would do that. Mm-hmm. And then I go on halfway through the set, holy shit, I have to take a really bad pee. <laughs> um, and so, so because there's nothing worse than playing drums and having it go to the bathroom. Yeah. You know, so I, and then of course, of course, when you're done, all bets off, you can have whatever you want yeah, to eat and drink. Right, um, yeah. But it's a weird thing. And my wife is always amused. Like, that's so weird. You do that. No, it's not. I, no, it's not weird at all. I do exactly the same thing nowadays. And uh, the last tour I did it, me and, me and Jason, uh, the Cure's current drummer would come off and just, you know, drink up and carb up afterwards because, you know, you don't want to do anything beforehand. Yeah. Back in the day though, when, when we were like first in the queue, we had these big screens at the side of the stage. <laughs> and of course, because I was drinking, you know, and, you know, not doing, you know, it was five, I was drinking on stage, off stage all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the yeah. crew would put a bucket behind the screen <laughs> and there was an, a, a long entrance to one song, I think at Grinding Hall, and I would just sort of run off. And and Robert would keep going with a little bit of guitar, and I'd have to speak. <laughs> and it worked out fine until the day that the the LD decided to bring the floor lamps up on the back, and there was this like fifty foot shadow of me peeing into a bucket, uh, you know, and hitters uh, from the audience. And it, the only thing I could do is come on back on stage and pretend like nothing happened at all. Just go, yeah, what? what, what <laughs> Wait, that wasn't me. That was somebody else. That was somebody else in the crew. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> there are no photographs of this lol there was no no footage no thank god yeah that was before the internet so you're lucky you got away with that one right yeah oh my god are we so lucky before the internet i mean i look back at some of the polaroids i've got of things and i'm like i am so glad this is not being seen yeah. by anybody else. <laughs> I, I concur <laughs> the best pee break i saw and i've only seen one really <clears throat> our, our <clears throat> dear departed <clears throat> the legend of Ginger Baker. Mm, mm-hmm. And Ginger was um, Shepherd's Bush Empire, and he had on stage with him Jack Bruce. And Zildjian were hosting this this kind of show. It was a kind of anniversary, and, and Ginger was talking about his symbols, and now he'd had the same set, right. the first symbol Zildjian gave him. And they were playing away, and uh, then they were going through a couple, few Cream songs. They had a good guitarist on. Clapton came up behind on a screen, you know, beamed in from LA and halfway through and then suddenly everything stopped and Ginger just kind of got up, you know, and, um, he just walked off, <laughs> which is interesting because I don't think Jack had really figured on this. So Jack's kind of, you know, dressed in finery and velvet and stuff, looks up at the audience and goes like, raises his arms and goes, I have no idea. Where's he gone? And, but as Ginger walks off, he's got a bicycle clip around his, 
uh, trouser legs, you know, to keep the f- trousers from flapping, or a sock over the hi hat leg, you know. <laughs> that I'd like, I thought, wow, this is this is trade secret stuff. Anyway, Ginger comes back after a, a, a suitable time, and then he does that thing you may remember from when you were first on stage. And as a drummer, you've got no way of communicating with anybody except through the snare drum mic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you bend down into your snare bike, and he went. Call of nature, gotta be. Call of nature, gotta go. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody. We can we can continue with the show now. Oh, I love that. And Jack's going like, love it. I thought you were going to say that you know he had one of those those bag things strapped to his leg, and the reason for the clip was to stop it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought too. Yeah, he was going to sort of unfurl it and and let it out. Yeah, go empty it. I go. Let me go empty my bag and my leg here. Uh, I that documentary on Ginger Baker was amazing. I mean, oh I, I had no idea he was so. What's the right word? Volatile. You know, you wanted to steer a clear path if he was in a in a bad mood. But some of the footage of him playing like jazz drums was unbelievable. I you know I only knew him really from Cream and the rock bands that he played with, and he was a badass drummer, man. No, he was a very badass drummer as a as a person. I mean, I think that that movie painted him in one particular. Maybe he wasn't completely like. Maybe he was. You know. But uh, I like the beginning of that one where he goes bang and hits the guy and says, just come and talk to me. I'm not going to do anything <laughs> yeah. to you. I'm not going to hit you unless you you say, just come and say it to me. Yeah, meanwhile, you can see that the journalist backing up slowly like, okay, uh, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine <laughs> with about a 12-foot uh, space between us here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I must have I must have seen Ginger Baker at the time. He must have been doing the photo shoot for his autobiography. You know, was it called? Uh, um, um, ooh, what was it called? Like, ooh, I can't think what it was called. Oh, it had a big angel on the front. It had a picture of him standing with angel wings. It was him in his leather leather coat, floor length leather coat with white angel wings on the back. It was called something like yes, dangerous or something, dirty angel or something. Called, yeah, I can't remember what it was called. And we, I was sitting with the drummer from ACDC, not the original guy. It was the guy who invented. I think he, he had like shaved head, bald head, big guy, lovely man. He's waiting for ACDC for weeks. And um, we're sitting at the bar, being polite, being nice, being kind of drummers at the bar. And we the lift doors opened and people turned. So we all turned and it was Ginger with a, a, a lady on each arm with this long full-length black leather coat on. You know, just, It was just a look of, yes, I know. I know. Wouldn't you like to be me? <laughs> <laughs> it is me. It is me. <laughs> I'm Ginger Baker. <laughs> Ginger Baker. That is great. Be prepared. Somebody told me a similar kind of story like that with um, with Charlie Watts. You know, this this French lady. She told me he came in and he looked like the queen, the king, the king. Oh, you know, the oh it, it it was Chris Slade. I just remembered Chris. Sorry about that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of drummers, I just heard, and Charlie Watts, uh, a friend of mine, our, our publisher, BMG, I think there's a new Stones record coming out because mm-hmm. I just heard a couple rough mixes. Um, I don't know how under the radar it is, but it's. Uh, I think they've done a whole new record. Obviously, wow. Charlie, I think they have some a couple tracks that Charlie had played, recorded a couple years, you know, before he passed away. I don't. I'm not even sure who's drumming on the rest of the tracks, but the the two tracks I heard. Sounded great, and I gotta say, Jagger sounds 
amazing as a singer. I mean, he's going for it in these songs. He does not sound as old as he is, you know. When I started playing drums, I wanted to be Keith Moon. And I realized very quickly, I am not Keith Moon. <laughs> but I could play more like Ringo and Charlie Watts. And so those are the records that I put on, like Stones records and Beatles records with headphones. I'd play along and try to figure out those beats. And uh, and uh, I, I, you know, it's, it, it makes me think I want to go see Ringo play sometime. I've never seen him perform. And, and I, I never got to see the Stones either. Um, I, I never saw Charlie play, you know. It's really good. I mean, I, I, I realized looking at old movies and stuff that, you know, I learned the hi-hat from Charlie Watts because I played the same. But he used to live near me. I used to live in the deepest countryside in England, in Devon. And he used to live near me. And I, I heard lots about it, but I never met him until one day I was taking a train to London. And I got off in Paddington Station. and I'm just walking along the, the train platform. And I see this elderly gentleman in front of me with with like you know something wasn't quite right because it from the back he looked like a doctor with this you know doctor's bag and stuff but the jacket the jacket was far too flamboyant for an old guy you know in the jacket. <laughs> I thought, who is who is that wearing that thing and i pulled up beside him and it's like charlie was like, oh, oh charlie you know we're neighbors blah blah, blah and that he's very nice cool right um cool guy cool guy Curious Creatures is presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio design, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Associate producer and digital marketing, Marge Taylor. Visual designer, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Assistant editor, Ben Miller. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2024.